I think we need to completely reframe the conversation because individual consumer choice has never fixed a problem to my knowledge. And so I think that we should have the conversation be like, hey, we can all agree that meat is bad. What can we do to change it? Um, and really focus that on like legislation, you know, like work on changing the way factory farming exists, work on changing the way wild caught fishing exists from a legislative and a regulatory point of view. Because that's something where it's like, yeah, let's work together politically to get something done. And it's not shaming somebody for their individual choices. And also, it's just much more effective because shaming people's individual choices means we're trying to shame 100% of the population. Um, I think it's a much more viable strategy to, to just get a working coalition together of people who can change things from a regulatory or legislative level um, to fix things that way instead of making an individual shaming issue where people end up defensive. All right, welcome to another episode of Animalia's podcast where we dive into various topics in the world of climate, conservation, and wildlife. I'm James. And I'm Annalie. And today we're talking with Michael about the cell-based meat industry, alternative meats, in general, plant-based meats, all things meat. Hey, I'm Michael Selden. I'm co-founder and CEO of Finless Foods, and I'm really psyched to be here. So just a fun little opening question for you, Michael. Uh, and this is, uh, feel free to answer it however you want. Is meat bad or is meat good? <laughs> well, is meat bad or is meat good? I would say... Um, I'm not big on defining things as like that black and white, I guess, but I would say that like the way that meat is currently produced could definitely uh, use a few changes to it. You know, if we're just talking about meat as like the sensory experience of like ingesting what is now called meat, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. It's really like an issue with the way it is produced, I would say, that isn't uh, up to our like moralistic expectations. Got it. So, Michael, give us a little bit of background on yourself and Finless Foods and, you know, sort of what you do day to day. Yeah, totally. So, myself, I have a background in biochemistry uh, and molecular biology. I graduated from uh, a bachelor's program that focused really on agriculture, uh, specifically on plants. We were working on um, the banana, which is in, in a lot of danger, actually. Um, and I sort of always was this like environmental activist and really, I, I really care a lot about um, food and agriculture. I think it's this just wild um, nexus of so many things that I care about from like economic justice to like malnutrition to environmental devastation. It's this intersection of so many things that are so important to so many people. Um, it feels like this incredible lever that we can use to make the world a better place. And um Yes. I mean, like from a young age, I felt that the way to make change there was to like go vegan because I saw this like massive issue in animal agriculture of something that's, you know, not very sustainable, something that's very cruel to animals. But as I got older, I really became sort of disappointed by like how little things were changing and started to realize that maybe like my own personal, like ethical consumer choices aren't really, you know, propelling the word world forward or backward. Um, and so I started thinking about like supply side change, but really didn't know what to do there. Um, in 2014, I saw this article in the Atlantic called the blood harvest. And this article was about how horseshoe crab blood is used for pharmaceutical quality control and about how we need so much of it every year to get all these pharmaceuticals that everybody needs. Um, and how it's destroying these habitats, destroying this animal and um, scientists in the 70s uh, realized this was a problem. And so they decided to come up with an alternative solution um, and came up with this like alternative horseshoe crab blood. And so that sort of got me thinking like, well, if you can make horseshoe crab blood outside of a horseshoe crab, why can't we just make all meat or any animal products outside of animals? Um, so I started Googling around to see if anyone else had thought of that. And luckily I was not the first, first person. Um, you know, there, this was back in like 2014. So like Mark Post had made a hamburger in the Netherlands, um, grown entirely outside of a cow. And that was more or less it. Um, but basically I realized that nobody was doing anything in fish and there's a, a way longer story in there, but basically uh, myself and one of my closest friends ended up founding this company, Finless Foods. Um, and what we do is we grow bluefin tuna meat entirely without 
animals. Um, and so basically what we do is we take a small sample from a real bluefin tuna, pull it out of the animal, and then grow that muscle up into an effectively unlimited supply of what is on a cellular level, meat. And the same meat that people are eating today, this, this bluefin sashimi, the big difference is it has no mercury, it has no plastic, it uses no antibiotics, um, and it doesn't destroy the ocean because it doesn't come from the ocean. Um, and on top of that, it doesn't need uh, any animal slaughter. So basically we see this as a way to sort of give people what they're looking for. And instead of having every single person on earth use their own like, you know, individual moral choices to create a better world through buying the right things, we instead just make the thing that is sustainable, the thing that is better for animals, better for the planet, better for us. We just make that the, the tastier and more affordable and more available option. And we see that as switching everybody over to something that's better for all of us. Um, so that's what we do in a nutshell. Great summary. So fascinating. Yeah, for- Cell-based meat is, you know, also an aspect of just general biogenerated foods, which is something I've spoken a lot about as, you know, wondering if it's going to be a prerequisite for the survival of this planet if we get to eight, nine, 10 billion people and beyond, um, because it, we're going to have a really difficult time feeding that number of people uh, with the systems we have in, in place. And so... Uh, I actually found Michael through, um, I guess a year, a year ago we met as I was researching the space and still learning about it. Michael and I still kind of go back and forth over email, um, mostly me asking questions and him answering them. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating field. It's a really important field. Um, you know, the, the degree of the importance and the degree of the dependency we're going to have on it in the future is totally, you know, TBD, but there's no doubt that, you know, this type of research, this type of science is critical as we try to wean off of high environmental impact. Even if you're not sort of moved by the moral story of meat, it's hard not to be moved by the environmental story of, of the meat industry, particularly the, farm, the, the factory farming and the scale of uh, the meat industry that sort of makes it impossible to produce uh, in its current form without damaging the environment you know, disproportionately to other, other, other food types. So, uh, it's, it's a really important, um, area of research and work. And thankfully you're here, Michael, before we go forward, I'm curious, Annalie, for you as, as someone who is a meat eater, uh, when you hear cell-based meat, lab-grown meat, alternative meat, do you instantly think, oh, I would for sure jump into that, you know, when it's ready and when, you know, when, when the, when I can afford it, um, or do you have some reservations just on the the sort of name alone, uh, the concept alone? Uh, just curious on what your reaction is when you hear that as a replacement, you know, possibly to uh, the traditional meat you eat today. I mean, I think initially it is kind of like it's something new. So it does grab my curiosity. and But I'm definitely super intrigued and open. I think I would just love to like try to understand or get a taste of it primarily because at the end of the day like and you're looking at the the facts of it the the way that it's benefiting the planet and as michael's saying like there are so many benefits um there's no slaughtering you're you're basically creating something that's essentially the same but even better like i mean i that's one of my concerns when i when i'm like looking at salmon or fish in the supermarket like I am always like, wow, this probably has microplastics. Like, so I feel like personally I'd be super intrigued and it's not, it's not off-putting at all. Yeah. And with with seafood in particular, you know, it seems like, and Michael, you can talk more to this. There has been a push away recognition that sort of wild caught, which is the, you know, purest form, usually higher priced is, is definitely, you know, at a place where it is, really damaging the overall sort of fish stock and, you know, population, um, you know, in the ocean, which has a overall impact on, on the ocean's ecosystem, because obviously all the, um, the, the entirety of life in the ocean that depends on, you know, sort of the equilibrium of that, of that ecosystem. And there's been a push into, uh, you know, farm fish as this, Sometimes I see a bill that has this uh, beneficial alternative, you know, uh, save the oceans, eat farm fish. But uh, of course, now that just sort of means that 
we're moving towards seafood in a way that we've done to livestock, we've done to cattle and pigs. And we sort of see what happens at the scale of that industry. You know, know, fish farming maybe is not at the scale in terms of the percentage. Certainly, we, you know, percentage of uh, cattle, pig we eat um, is almost 100%. Uh, raised versus you know wild caught, um, it's not that same same way in seafood. But I I see some suspicious marketing sometimes from um, you know farm fisheries saying that they are saving the oceans, uh, and I think of myself, I'm like, okay, well, this seems a lot like the the factory farming we do for for generations and centuries in livestock. We know that you know we know where that's taken us and gotten us. Um, so I I you know. Curious on like what you, do you see the same thing and do you see, do you see some of that marketing out there as well? Yeah, totally. So, you know, if you're concerned about like animal welfare, like animals being treated, you know, poorly or not, you know, farming, anything is a nightmare, right? But even putting that aside, um, the environmental effects are, are kind of nebulous. Like there's some potential advantages there. Like it could prevent some ecosystem collapse to eat farmed fish instead of wild caught fish. Um, and it comes with sort of its own like environmental challenges. But I would say the real uncontentious issue with farm fish that everybody, including fish farmers, can agree on is that it's very hard to scale. And there's plenty of species that currently still to this day can't be farmed. Industrial fish farming as it exists, like really only started 40 years ago. It's very, very new and it's skyrocketed. It's, it's grown wildly quickly um, to the point where today a little bit over 50% of the fish or any seafood eaten worldwide is produced via farms. So that's some, some good progress. Um, but the problem is that it's not growing fast enough and its growth is slowing. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But the, the most sort of jarring and glaring of the reasons why fish farm growth is, is slowing is that we're just running out of space to do it in. Like you need a really set like temperature, pH, like this really beautiful, perfect ocean environment for whatever species you're trying to farm. And then you also need it to be deep enough and close enough to shore to get a workforce out there. Um, If you have something way in the middle of the ocean, you have these like big open ocean nets, they like get knocked apart by storms and by big waves. And then also it's hard to get a crew out there to work on this farm. Um, So it's really susceptible to escapes, to theft, et cetera. So, yeah, the two issues really are just like it's hard to grow uh, as an industry because they're running out of physical geographical space to put these farms. And the other half is that there's tons of species like tuna, for example, that straight up can't be farmed right now. Um, and that's because we don't quite understand their physiology. Um, tuna, as, as my continuing example, since that's really what we focus on at Finless, is this massive apex predator. They're like six feet long. They're hugely fast and they're really finicky. Um, they're finicky eaters and they have a very long um, sexual life cycle, which makes it really difficult to do experiments on them. When you know, you're trying to learn what conditions a fish can grow up to slaughter weight in, you have basically a three to five year long experiment of like getting these fish up to the right size. And if anything goes wrong in there, like, you know, a wave knocks things over or, or destroys things or like the fish gets sick, like that can completely destroy the entire experiment. And so it's just been slow. And, and lots of fish or sea creatures in general with long life cycles um, still aren't farmable to this day. If you ever see something in the supermarket that says like um, farmed tuna, what they really mean is it's ranched. It's still wild caught. It's just wild caught as a juvenile, as, as a young tuna brought into a pen, fattened up, and then eventually slaughtered. Um, So it's not actually, you know, decreasing the amount of wild-caught fish, right? It's just catching them at a different stage of their life cycle. Um, And so that's why solutions like Finless are, you know, at least right now, like really welcomed by the fish farming community, because for them, they've always wanted to be able to produce things like tuna and have never had the ability to do so. So basically we, you know, can create that for people. and yeah, we can create something that's incredibly fast in terms of the way that it scales. For them, their experiments take like three to five years. For us, cells live and die in a matter of like 24 to 72 hours. So our experiments happen faster, which is why we've made so much progress in so little time and why our tanks turn over so fast. Like for us, growing this this whole growth process um, from you know initial seeding of these cells all the way up to some like a huge amounts of sashimi takes about a month. So a month versus years, we have a better, faster, iterative process. And I think that we can expand this to even farmable species eventually. But for now, we're just proving it on species that nobody can currently do. When you say the fish farm industry is your friend uh, and they're supportive of what you're doing, I just just unpacking that a little bit, uh, they don't see this as 
sort of competition. Uh, because if, you know, in a world where we can, um, you know, uh, create fish through these cell-based uh, mechanisms at scale and at a price point that, that matches the traditional models or the farming models, there is no need for farming in general. I mean, you know, because the stem cells, from my understanding, can be immortalized. Uh, you don't need a constant flowing volume of them. Um, so I'm just curious, like, where they, how, like, the line they draw in, in looking at a place like Finless as, you know, a friend maybe today and saying, hey, you guys are tackling a specific species, in this case, bluefin tuna, that we can't raise. But I'm sure they must know that over time, if, you know, if this works and this scales, when we think of 10, 20, 30, 40 years looking forward, there might be no need for fish farms or do you not see it that way? Um, it's hard to say, right? Like in my dream world, everything is cell-based fish um, and nothing is farm-raised or wild-caught ever. But, um, you know, for now, uh, they've been very, very helpful. Like we've taken an investment from a uh, venture firm that specializes in aquaculture called Hatch. And like, they've really shown me around to the world of aquaculture. I was like really hostile to it when we started the company, but uh, basically like these are people who hold a lot of the same ethos that we do. Like they really see a huge problem in the way the world consumes wild caught fish and they see, uh, they, they want to solve that. And so the solution that they saw was, and still is fish farming. But for a lot of these people, they're like really in this for a lot of the same reasons. They they don't have like the animal welfare concerns that a lot of people in our industry do, but they do have the environmental concerns. And um, they basically, a lot of them are just like, hey, if this works and this is more environmentally like sustainable, we're in. I hadn't realized how extensive those experiments were, um, the three to five years, which like blows my mind. And like you're saying, the ability to create um, so much progress in the short amount of time with what you're doing is incredible. And I think that, yeah, at the end of the day, like, as you're saying, they have the same similar ethos. And if they're seeing there's progress, um, I'm sure that they want to hop on board and be a part of that. Like it is bettering the ecosystem overall. Yeah. It, it, it um, well, I was going to draw an analogy to Netflix in the in the creative industry, but I don't I don't think uh, it might be too long to explain. <laughs> um, the so real quick, just do a, a, just a terminology for our listeners, Michael. Just kind of rapid fire answer. I mean, you know these things inside and out, but for those who don't, can you just describe in like one sentence what alternative meats means or what it means to you? Plant based meats, cell based meats, and then GMOs. Yeah, sure. So alternative proteins has just been this like blanket term essentially being used to, for now, cover kind of non-animal animal products. So this can be anything from like the Impossible Burger producing beef using, you know, mostly plants, but then a biotech heme ingredient um, to Beyond Meat, which is just fully plants as burgers, to us doing what is on a cellular level, the same thing as the sashimi people are eating today. So it's kind of like a, uh, the biggest blanket term you can use for kind of like the future of animal products. Um, and then what are the next few terms? Sorry. Uh, uh, plant-based, cell-based, and GMOs. Mm. Yeah. So plant-based, uh, it's something that is made from plants. So we would say like beyond, beyond burger, that's plant-based. It's plants reconstituted to have the same look and feel of meat, but it does come from plants. Cell-based is the term that we use to refer to what we do in that it is, uh, still on a cellular level fish meat, but we're just growing it via like directly from animal cells rather than using an animal as a machine to do that. Um, GMO is complicated. Uh, it really depends on what country you live in. Um, in America, um, a GMO product is a food product that the, the DNA has had foreign DNA inserted into it. So this you know, can be anything from like a strain of wheat that's had a gene from quinoa put into it to produce the same like natural pesticide that quinoa um, emanates in, in order to basically reduce uh, chemical pesticide use to like the Arctic apple, which has had a gene inserted in it that uh, stops it from browning when it when it touches the air. Um, it has different definitions in other countries, though. It's it's actually kind of funny. GMO is sort of not a scientific term. It's more like a, a regulatory and, and labeling term. Yeah, and GMO too. And I, I don't want to get, you know, this can be a rabbit hole, so I don't want to um, totally <laughs> get too, too into the GMO because it's super complex. And, you know, what I do want to say to it is for, for people listening, don't just kind of sort of blanket assume GMOs are bad and evil. 
Um, I, there's, we have a tendency to sort of like always say, you always pursue non-GMO products. It's, you see, we see that in marketing of foods all the time mm. and, and that's for a reason too, like, cause GMOs can be bad. Um, and they can be, they can be harmful. Um, uh, but they, they also, uh, can be beneficial and it's all, it's all a matter of what you're using, um, what you're modifying, how you're doing it. It's just, it's a very complex world. So I just, for those listening, just take away, just understand that, you know, GMOs, are uh is it's a it's a complex world uh don't just take a blanket sort of this is evil or this is all good approach to it and mm. i would encourage users to kind of do some more research on that and maybe another time we'll have uh, another talk on gmos yeah it's also really funny because there's so much like misinformation on gmos out there like even on packaging like our american labeling scheme for gmo doesn't make tons of sense like I have, you know, bumblebee tuna in a can in my kitchen and it says non-GMO on the can. There's no such thing as a GMO tuna. Like we can't even really raise them in captivity or breed them. So we can't really modify their genes either. Um, and so it's kind of funny, like in Japan, they have laws against that. In, in Japan, if you put non-GMO on a product that does not have um, a GMO equivalent, like available for sale in Japan, you have to state that. So like, for example, on rice in Japan, it says non-GMO. And then underneath it, it says there is no GMO rice for sale in the country of Japan <laughs> to make it clear to people that it's like, this is kind of a silly marketing thing. There's really, I, I might get the number slightly wrong, but I, there's only eight GMO products on market in the US. People see it as like invading 100% of their food, but it's really uh, fairly limited in scope. There's no GMO animal products on market right now in the US, um, or I think anywhere actually. And like, you know, because of this kind of stuff, Finless is making um you know is is not genetically modifying the cells that we're that we're using not because we're anti-gmo or because we think it's bad but just because people seem to hate it and we want to meet people where they're at so it's sort of a difficult line to like tell as a company but our stance is just like gmos are good that said we understand that people don't like them and so we're not going to make them even though it would make our product more efficient you know it could make it tastier cheaper it could make it more environmentally friendly but we have to work with people where they're at that's a good point. Like, I think that's also something we discussed when we had a, a separate episode on like veganism, um, just like making sure to meet people where they're at. And to your second point on marketing, do you know, like, is, are there any, as you're saying how in Japan it's, it's, there's laws against like the inaccurate or misinformation of labeling. Do you know if like there's any progress or movement in, in trying to create laws to regulate that any further in the U S not to my knowledge. Um, yeah, the GMO conversation in the U.S. is kind of stalled around like mandatory labeling for GMOs. Um, and I don't know exactly where it's going to go. Everything's kind of uh, on hold right now anyways because of COVID from like a regulatory point of view. But um, yeah, if you know of anybody who's like doing that kind of movement, I'd love to talk to them because I'm very interested. Yeah, so moving on, the the there's obviously been everyone knows about beyond meat and impossible burger at this point. Uh, they've had, uh, you know, kind of, uh, grabbed a lot of attention in the last particularly five years. And what's interesting about this. And, and I think overall they've been part of this kind of larger movement of people sort of questioning meat at, you know, at a wider range for the first time. I mean, obviously people have been challenging the meat industry and, in, in you know, in small pockets of, of communities or, on Capitol Hill um, for years, but it hasn't really gone into the masses. And I think, um, well, it's still a, a sort of fringe, you know, small movement. I say it's no longer a fringe movement of looking for alternatives to uh, to the to, to the meat industry. Um, so Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger have have really kind of come into their own as plant based alternatives. Although you know, uh, Beyond Meat is purely plant based, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, Impossible Burger. Um, does draw some of its heme using um, uh, uh, animal derived, or originally was an animal derived uh, byproduct, or or a GMO, or I don't know exactly where they've they, they've landed, but there is beyond me, from what I understand, is is more a hundred percent plant based, uh, and Impossible Burgers not. Is that is that true? Is that correct or not? Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I agree that it's kind of hard to classify Impossible Burger. Here, here's what I, my understanding of how Impossible works. Like they have this ingredient heme, which is found in kind of everything. Um, they, in large part, were producing it via 
taking a gene from soy that produces heme and put it into yeast and let the yeast ferment that. So the yeast um, was a, a GMO. It's a genetically modified strain of yeast, but the product of it, this heme protein, is not a GMO um, because you know it's a protein. So it actually doesn't have any genes at all. So there's no G. Uh, you can't M it, and it's not an O. Um, <laughs> and so it gets put into this regulatory bucket of produced via genetic engineering. Um, but basically, this heme protein, there is, on a chemical level, no way to tell the difference between it and something that was produced not via genetic engineering. So the whole thing is not labeled as a GMO. But basically, um, it puts Impossible Burger in sort of this between area, where everything is plants except for this heme, which is produced via fermentation from yeast. Um, and I don't know. You can call that whatever you want, I guess. That's a... Uh more accurate description of what I was trying to say. <laughs> um, it, it seems like it's a combination of timing, certainly innovation. Cause look, we've had, we've had plant-based burgers for a long time. Uh, they're typically sitting in the frozen section of a grocery store and, you know, everything from, you know, black bean patties to, uh, tofu burgers and, um, you know, garden burgers and all the different varieties. Um, so we've had these for a while, but, what do you think it was just a combination of the innovation they did and sort of getting the the burger closer to its you know um, meat alternative, um, the timing of it? Uh, was there anything particularly well you think they did on the marketing side, or what was it in your mind that really allowed Beyond and Impossible to sort of break out um, in a way that you know plant based burgers never had been able to do before? Mm. I yeah, I mean that's the million dollar question, right? I I think that. One thing they did was they focused on flavor. They were like, this is not, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I guess the two big things are really one big thing, which is that they just, they targeted a non-vegan audience. They were like, vegans like plants and a lot of burgers cater to that, like black bean burgers. I love black bean burgers. I don't, I'm never going to confuse one for a hamburger made from a cow, right? They're different. Um, and so this, they were just like, we're going to make something that is aimed at meat eaters and is aimed to recreate the exact experience of eating a hamburger. And we're going to kind of throw health a little bit out the window with that, because most people who are reaching for a hamburger aren't really considering their health that much in the first place, for better or for worse. And I think that a lot of the vegetarian and vegan products really tried to work with this more health conscious vegan consumer. I think that that was a really big breakthrough, basically, that like, yeah, we should, you know, make healthy food, right? And people should be healthy, but plenty of people don't care and aren't interested. And so for them, we should find a way so that they can be environmentally sustainable and still get the flavors that they want and not have to compromise those flavors because of nutritional concerns. Anna, what do you think about Beyond Impossible? I think they're great. I mean, they're, they're trailblazers, right? Like, I don't, I don't even know if I'd be here if not for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I eat them. Uh, actually, Finless was founded over Impossible Burgers. Um, I took, I, I was like working on this as a project. I took my close friend, Brian, um, who's now my co-founder, out to eat at Momofuku Nishi in Manhattan, where they were one of the first places to get the Impossible Burger. Um, and just I was telling him about this project and talking about cell isolations. I'm more of like a molecular biologist and he's more of a cellular biologist. We were both working in hospitals in, in New York. And um, in telling him like about this project, he was like, basically, oh yeah, that would make total sense. Here are all the materials you need. Here's the exact steps you need to do. Like, And he was just describing protocols to me that I had been trying to research and figure out how they worked. Um, I basically realized <clears throat> during that conversation, I was like, do you want to just do this together, basically? It sounds like you know more of what you're doing than I do. Um, so yeah, I mean, Impossible Burger, very directly influential over, over me and over the company at, at large. Um, and Pat Brown in particular is just like a really like, uh, he's like a hero. I mean, he's just this incredible firebrand for this industry and for this movement. And he's been really, really inspiring to tons of people, myself included. Like in terms of um, like the way that the cell, the cell based meats work, like what, what is the scientifically or technically speaking, like what is the hardest part to get right? Well, mm. real, real, real quick, just ahead of that question. Um, can you just first walk us through in as layman terms as you can, the process at a high level? Yeah, totally. So there's two buckets that I'd put the process into. There's the R&D process and there's the production process. So the R&D process, you need a sample from a real animal. Um, 
and it can be from really anywhere that gets cells. And, and what we found is that each animal actually you want to isolate from different points of the animal. But you take out essentially a biopsy, like a little chunk of oftentimes meat um, from an animal. And from that, you basically put it through a complex series of filters to just get the cells that you want. Um, and the cells that we want are cells that can do a few things. They need to be able to divide and create more of themselves, um, and they need to be able to turn into muscle, fat, and connective tissue, and then knit together to form those muscle fibers. Um, so once you have those cells, you'll design a feed for them, You know something that allows them to grow up very quickly, allows them to retain their ability to turn into muscle, and that is you know, affordable um, and safe. So from there, you've got your cell stock, you've got your media. Um, that's the the feed that you're giving it. The media is the word for that. Um, and that's where the R&D process ends. From that point, you don't need to go back to an animal ever again. This is where the production process starts. And the production process is broken down into two stages. The first stage is proliferation. So you have these, these cells growing out in a big tank, um, like you'd see at a brewery, and they're just dividing in a liquid and in, in swirling around in this big sort of bioreactor. Um, and uh, you're feeding them this media that you've designed. So they're floating around, they're dividing, they're creating a ton of themselves with this feed that you're feeding them. From there, you take the cells out and they will have like the right taste, uh, they'll have the right flavor and they'll have the right nutrition, but it'll be basically a, an unstructured mass. It's like a paste of whatever animal you're trying to create for us, bluefin tuna. Um, from there, you need to move to step two of the production process, which is differentiation. So this basically means you are getting those cells to form together, like to, to elongate and to twist into muscle fibers. Um, and that's really what gives you not just the flavor and nutrition, but also that texture that people really want from meat. Um, and basically you just let them create muscle in the same way that they do naturally. Um, the cells that we're isolating, you know, a lot of them are built to do exactly this. They're built to float around in your body, um, wait for them to be needed when you're like either exercising or you end up like with an injury or something, they come to the, the spot in question and then form new muscle at that spot. Um, so we're just basically allowing these cells the opportunity to do that outside the body of an animal. And from there you end up with like sashimi in our case yeah that was also such a great thorough explanation like breaking it down i guess and my question was just like what aspect is the hardest scientifically or technically as you're describing mm. i would say you know we're not fully figured out in everything right because we're not in stores yet um so maybe something will be harder but it seemed like to me the hardest thing for us um, was getting our cells into a scalable format, um, basically getting the cells not just growing on a flat surface on like, you know, on a Petri dish, um, but floating around in a bioreactor and proliferating there. Um, that was a really difficult step. And it took a lot of basically adaptation. Um, we essentially just used evolution to our advantage. We took the cells from a flat surface, threw them into this 3D environment. And then, you know, when about half of them died, we would take them out, put them back on a flat surface, let them recover, rest, grow back out, and then just repeat that process over and over again. And every time it killed the cells that were not so good at swimming around and proliferating, and it created this stronger and stronger population, basically using um, evolution, but really, really quickly. I see. That's really cool. And what aspect is is it because i've read how i mean a lot of these lab grown meats they've at the very beginning like they were super super extensive over the years that you're, as you're saying they have made a lot of progress but what is it that is keeping the cost so high it's the feed that media for those cells um it's expensive previously cell culture was only ever done for medical applications um, so there wasn't really the need to decrease the like cost of the feed for the cells below a certain spot but beyond that, also, it's just we're creating completely new cell cultures. Like nobody's ever bothered, you know, culturing tuna cells before, because why would you? And so we needed to devise like a completely um, separate and new way of feeding these cells. Um, and you start off with some fairly expensive ingredients because you start off with ingredients that are super nutrient rich. You're just throwing absolutely everything you can at these cells in the hopes that something nourishes them. And from there, you then pair back all of these really, really nutrient rich like medias until you just get the ingredients that the cells want the most, um, which is much, much cheaper than having, you know, some sort of media ingredient with like thousands of things in it. How similar process, um, sorry, how similar, Michael, is your process to the process of using stem cells to create organs? Uh, 
um, organ tissues and things that we have been doing in the medical industry. Um, not for a long time necessarily, but, uh, certainly we've done, you know, we, we've made more progress there than on cell based meats. Uh, how similar are those, are, are those things? It's really the same. Um, and, and I, I'm glad that you're bringing that up. Like this technology is new in the animals that we're doing it in, but the idea of printing, you know, an organ has been around forever. It's just, you know, before everyone was focused on printing human organs for medical purposes, we're focused on printing fish organs, you know, muscle for food. Um, and while the 3D organ printing industry is having issues with um, making sure that their organs are functional and that they can be implanted and like actually be accepted by the body of the person they're implanting them into ours just need to taste good and just need to be affordable so it's basically like a set of challenges that have really never been attempted before not because they're in particular difficult but just because no one's ever needed to make things this cheap before and to be clear cell-based meats they do or do not actually alternate the fundamental, you know, kind of building block cells themselves. Like they're not, um, in this process, you're not using anything like CRISPR to actually change the, 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 the fundamental cellular structure that you're using, uh, or are you, or, or is it just you're keeping the cells as they are, but then you're just, you know, kind of using technology to, you know, differentiate, adhere, you know, build, but are, or are you actually altering them in any way? Um, we're not doing any gen genetic engineering on our cells. Um, and yeah, when the cells, like if they ever, you know, start looking not like their natural selves, we generally will throw that culture away because it means they're not going to be able to form the muscle tissue that we want. So basically, you know, short and easy answer, we're really not changing them much um, because we don't want to, because we want them to do the same thing that they do in the wild. Um, and the better they do that, the better off our end product is. And can you, can you chat a little bit about the use of serum? Uh, I know it, oftentimes it's sort of used in the early stages of exploring this technology, but obviously the goal is to get off of it because for folks listening, serum is an animal derived product. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that, whatever you're willing, you can share, um, and, uh, the, the sort of the use case for serum and then how, you know, how the technology is going to be developed to, to get, to get away from serum usage. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, just as a quick definition of terms, like serum is basically cleaned up and distilled animal blood. Um, there's all sorts of different types of serums. There's everything from, you know, uh, fetal bovine serum. That's one really common one, FBS, to um, horse serum, to all types of fish serum. There's human serum that you can buy, um, usually from like expired blood from blood banks. Um, but basically, it's really important for initial cell isolations. So when you're first taking a cell out of an animal or, or a human, um, that cell hates it because it's a really like stressful thing to happen to it. Serum is great because it is so ridiculously nutrient dense. It's got thousands of proteins in it, um, and your cells probably will eat something going on in there and survive based on that. Um, but it's really only helpful in that stage one of the R&D process of getting those cells out of an animal and surviving. The instant that you have them actually surviving, you want to start getting them off of serum as quick as you can. It's crazy expensive. Um, it also, you know, <laughs> introduces animals into the process, which we don't want. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I separate the R&D process from the production process. Once you have this media defined going into the production process, there's never any serum. And I, I think I can say this with a good amount of confidence, but no company in our industry will ever take a product to market that actually still uses serum in its production process. It's just so expensive. It, it makes no sense. Um, so, you know, how do we get off of serum? The answer is like any cell culture that's done at scale is already off of serum, including in pharma, um, because it's just so expensive. When will we get off of serum for those initial isolations? Maybe never. Um, I think that we might kind of just need it um, if you're ever going to do initial cell isolations from any animal, that whole step in that whole field is called primary cell culture. The act of taking cells out of a living organism and getting them to survive. Um, yeah. And like the process is so short lived, like to develop a serum alternative for it. It, it's such a small amount that's ever used. It's not like a massive environmental problem. You wouldn't really be able to make a successful business doing it because you don't really need very much of it. And basically like 
you know, for us at Finless, at least, so we've isolated these cells from bluefin tuna. We have these cells growing out essentially forever. Um, and now we have them growing without serum. So we're never going to need serum for any of our bluefin tuna cultures ever again. That said, you know, if we start a new species, which we're aiming to do, um, say we started with like eel, we would need to use serum at the beginning of that process. So the answer of like, when will we be off serum is when we have cell stock for every single animal that anyone could ever potentially want to eat. Um, and hopefully that happens soon. And can you speak uh, just a couple more things on the, the sort of science of this? Uh, can you speak to stem cell immortal, immortalization and sort of what that means and, and why it's so important? Yeah, totally. So basically, like in, in this field, you really do want the cells to be growing out forever without needing to keep going back to animals, right? The idea is to get us off of animal agriculture, not just reduce animal agriculture. Um and so cell immortalization is just this idea of getting the cells to grow out forever. Um, and there's a number of ways in which you can do that. Finless Foods is really lucky in that um, marine animal cells actually don't require any genetic engineering in order to immortalize them. We can and have just got them growing out forever with no genetic engineering. If you're working with land animals, that's tougher. Um, and there's really two strategies companies are taking. One is some are working with genetically engineering their cells. Um, and the other is that some companies are just going to do continuous samples of animals um, and just trying to work with that and streamline that isolation process. I, I do think there is like a possibility eventually for us to like have non-genetically engineered immortalized cell lines for land animals. It's just tough. And I don't know if anyone has solved that issue quite yet. And then I, I know the the form factor of these things is hard in terms of, you know, you know, kind of replicating every shape, the scaffolding um, is still like part of the the work being done in progress and part of the area you're continuing to bring costs down to get these things to market. But just from the flavor and taste, uh, from what you've created to date, I know you've done some sort of user testing uh, throughout this process. Is it truly at a place, you know, when the form factor is replicated? So I, you know, I think you've shown me before, um, you know, the, the form factor for what, you produce to date and what you've tested to date with, with and, and users uh, similar to, you know, the, the texture you might see in, in a piece of sushi, um, for example. When that, for the form factors, you can replicate pretty well. The end user, the, you know, have you done blind taste, uh, taste testing studies where they truly don't know the difference? Or is there still a little bit of, of difference there in, in the sort of flavor profile of the palate? I, I bring up like Beyond Meat as something that you know, I think, you know, Anna made a point that it's certainly, um, you know, it's, 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 it's much closer than we ever had a plant-based burger, but any, anybody who, who eats meat, eats, eats hamburgers. I've, I've, I've given Beyond Meat to many friends and family that do, they, they acknowledge that Beyond Meat burger's good, but they do know the difference. Like they, if they, if I put two side by side and they eat them, they, they know which one's a hamburger. They don't get it wrong. So, hmm. uh, curious, uh, where that is in turn and with, with what you've produced the date on the bluefin tuna. Yeah. Um, what's nice is that we have like kind of an advantage when working with tuna. There's so much variety already in tuna, like with a hamburger, you're going to get a fairly consistent product every time, right? Like hamburger is hamburger and it's very reproducible with tuna. There's so many different cuts. There's so that, that, Flavors and textures like vary so wildly based on uh, age, like basically how long the meat has spent outside of the animal. Um, that you know, when put in a lineup of a bunch of different cuts of tuna, a bunch of different like types of tuna from a bunch of different places, um, our stuff really doesn't stand out, which is great. Like it really does blend in, and so we've had tons of success with that. Um, also, I think we have a bit of an easier challenge because tuna is very gel-like and gels are very easy to reproduce using current scaffolding technology. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's sort of hollow sounding coming from like the, the founder of a company saying that his product is good. But I, I, I think it's really, really convincing and we've been able to fool people over and over again with it. So really excited to, to bring it to the public soon. And last question on the the science, the technology part, and then we'll kind of get to the last section before we wrap up. The Are there any any concerns, and this is just as general for cell-based meats, so this would apply to Finless, to Memphis Meats, the, the various companies out there. We Since this area is so new, 
what should we be aware of or what should we be studying and measuring um, in terms of, you know, looking at long-term health implications, uh, things that we just maybe can anticipate that, you know, could happen. Uh, I think like, I'll give you an example, you know, and when, when we first introduced pesticides to agriculture, it was pretty much celebrated across the board. And, and I'm not trying to compare these things, but just as a, from a logical standpoint, the, uh, you know, we didn't know when we launched those products, the sort of the damaging effects they were going to have on agriculture long-term. And in the beginning, it was, cel- it was very much celebrated as, wow, like here are, there's a new, you know, kind of uh, uh, tech, uh, scientific and uh, technological way to augment agriculture and improve yields, um, cut down on pests while, you know, everybody wins. That was really like the, the, the sort of initial reaction to pesticides for the most part. We, we obviously fast forward today. We, we know that's not true. Um, are there anything, you know, anything out there that you think, ah, this could happen, but it's, it's, it's highly unlikely, or we are going to be monitoring and measuring for this. Is there anything people should know about, um, long-term health implications that could come out of this? And if so, how is the industry a total? Not, I don't want to just focus on Finless in this question, but how is the industry looking at that? And how is the industry going to be measuring that? Yes, yeah, so actually, I think the, the comparison to pesticides is apt um, because, you know, we know that there's, as far as I'm aware, there's really no deleterious health effects for the people who are eating the food that the pesticide was used on. However, there are health effects for the people living close to the farms where pesticides are sprayed. Um, and so I think that that same sort of dichotomy is going to happen with cell-based meats, where I don't really see a possibility for any way in which people are eating it could be harmed. But, you know, this is taking a process, you know, fit catching fish that currently produces basically no emissions. It's a very low emissions industry in every way and moving it on land and making it, you know, need energy in order to, you know, produce fish. Um, so if we don't move ourselves towards a completely decarbonized grid, this is uh, adding to global warming, you know, and, and this isn't the only industry that's the case for, right? Like we have, we have to move everything away from uh, carbon creating energy sources like immediately. We have like 10 years or less at this point. Um, so I really want people to make sure they're watching for that and making sure that like all, you know, th- that we are actually decarbonizing the energy grid because that is what will go along with this like better food technology and better food policy towards creating a, a real sustainable future for all of us. It seems like we are setting ourselves up for what's going to be a quite contentious in some ways uh uh, in, in other ways, just sort of, you know, kind of arms race um, in the meat industry. When I look at sort of, uh, you know, the traditional meat industry and livestock and ranchers that, of course, are going to be wanting to sort of hold on um, to as much market share as they can uh, to plant based, to sell based. Uh, is it right to look in the next 10, 20 years and think like this is a bit of a battleground that we're kind of moving into? Maybe. I don't know. I The people that I've spoken to in the meat industry, for them, they're like, we make meat. And if the way that you make meat is via cell-based technologies, then we do that. Um, a lot of the large corporations that work in these spheres now have internal cell-based meat teams. I see that as a huge victory. You know, people are like, are you scared of that? I'm like, absolutely not. I think it's incredibly validating. You know, there's like one company on earth owns most of the tuna production for pretty much the entire planet. Um, we're in fairly heavy contact with them and they have a dedicated team of people internally who specifically work on cell-based meats. And, uh, I don't know, I'm, I don't know if I can take credit for that, but I'm, I'm still pretty happy about it. I'm, I'm proud if we did it and I'm happy even if we didn't. Why do you think the meat industry itself is so, um, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of a spark for a lot of debate. Uh, it gets, people get very passionate about it. I have a difficult time talking about, um, you know, the meat industry with anyone who doesn't have it's the same, you know, beliefs as me. Not not from like in terms of like me looking for arguments, but just it's a it's like it's so politicized in a way. It's become so politicized, and it, it, and people have whatever their it seems like whatever their choice is on meat, um, and I'm, I'm I'm guilty of this myself. They they sort of hold on to it as the right one. And they don't want to be wrong about it. And they're not really, 
not a lot of flexibility of looking at alternatives. And again, I'm raising my hand saying like, I am guilty of this uh, <laughs> uh, as well. And so I'm wondering why, you know, you both think, uh, maybe we go Anna first and then, and then Michael, why you think it is mean in particular, how it, people come at it, whatever viewpoint they're coming from, with such a point of passion and also ultimately, you know, why this is so politicized in a way and why it's so hard to talk about meat with anybody who thinks differently than you do about meat in particular. I, I just haven't seen, I don't see any other aspects of food for me personally that have this much sort of um, passion behind it uh, as the meat industry does. And I'm just curious on uh, your reaction to that. A, do you agree with that? Or maybe maybe you feel like uh, what I'm saying is off base. And then two, um, if you do, why do you think that is? Personally, I definitely agree with you. I think it might have something to do with just the fact that it it is such a big part of like our consumption and even like I mean I didn't have like a plant-based upbringing meat was like the main thing like my parents were like meat is pro like that is your one source of protein and if you're not eating your vegetables at least eat your meat like even though that's such like a like probably is not how we should be addressing like diets and all but I think it has a lot to do with just the attachment of of people trying to create a change and, and especially in something that hasn't had um, drastic changes in in so long like we have seen of course like more offerings and plant-based um replacements but meat itself is is i think just something that we're all so attached to at least if you were raised with a meat eating upbringing what do you think michael I totally agree with that as a take. And and I think that uh, a key thing in here is like the uh, sort of the shaming that goes on a lot of the time um, towards people who are eating meat. I think that because we constantly frame this conversation as one where we have to only make change by our own individual ethical consumer choices, it gets people very defensive because if the conversation is like meat is bad, so and, and I don't eat it, so you're bad for eating it. That makes people very defensive because they're like, well, I'm not bad and I want to eat meat. So how can I justify that to myself? And so they'll sort of get into, you know, denial that it's bad for the environment. I think we need to completely reframe the conversation because individual consumer choice has never fixed a problem to my knowledge. And so I think that we should have the conversation be like, hey, we can all agree that meat is bad. What can we do to change it? Um, and really focus that on like legislation, you know, like work on changing the way factory farming exists, work on changing the way wild caught fishing exists from a legislative and a regulatory point of view. Because that's something where it's like, yeah, let's work together politically to get something done. And it's not shaming somebody for their individual choices. And also, it's just much more effective because shaming people's individual choices means we're trying to shame 100% of the population. Um, I think it's a much more viable strategy to, to just get a working coalition together of people who can change things from a regulatory or legislative level um, to fix things that way instead of making an individual shaming issue where people end up defensive. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with both of you. And I, I think that last point is is key, right? I mean, we, we generally as, as, as human beings, we have a really, and uh, all of us, uh, you know, um, fall in this category. We have a hard time of accepting anything we, um, you know, we believe, uh, we behave is, is wrong. And, and that label, that label wrong is, uh, in of itself, not, not often helpful or, but just like accepting anything we do is, is not optimal for somebody else. And, uh, you know, I think meat consumption certainly falls into this, this bucket, uh, of, you know, it's, it's hard if you, if you're someone who does eat meat on a regular basis to hear someone tell you, Hey, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, mm. and, What's also hard is people don't factor in to all the different individual characteristics that person might have in their life, right? And we have to understand. I mean, I've you know been. You guys probably saw this in my article about veganism, but living a plant-based life is a privilege to do. It is not something that is available to everybody in this country on an equal basis. To think it is is absurd. Um, you know, you need to kind of wake up and and understand. You know how how much food is different in lower income areas and you know different parts of the country where there's not as much you know local fresh produce as we have in California we're really lucky here in LA um to have so much uh, abundance of produce that's kind of locally grown um but it's just not it's not an even playing field um there's also cultural differences 
uh, for people, there's religious, you know, differences, which falls into that, probably that cultural bucket. Um, there's health differences for people. Um, you know, and, and just, there's a lot of factors here. So I think one of the challenges is, you know, we, we tend to sort of, if look at everybody of like, oh, you're a human being and I'm a human being. So we should have the same, like, you know, we both should have the same sort of, uh, if we're both good people, then we both should not even eat eating meats. But that's, that's not really a fair sort of assessment of things because there are so many of these other factors in that. But I do think regardless, meat will continue to be a contentious issue and meat will be, continue to be a passionate issue. Um, there's a lot of jobs, right. That are tied in this country to, um, to livestock and ranching and, uh, and, and farm factory that we, you know, people that we, we need to find alternatives for if we do eventually wean off of it. Um, there's, there's, you know, a lot of economic impact tied to that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do hope and an optimistic because of people like yourself, Michael, that we will continue to innovate our way out of this issue of the, the, the foot, the environmental damage, the moral damage, um, that, that me causes. And for some people, the health damage, I don't, I think, again, everyone has sort of, you know, different, uh, different makeup and, uh, the sort of negative, um, effects of meat are, are different on different people. And of course I'm by different types of meat, but by and large, I think the more studies seem to show that the, the more, uh, you know, plant, based you eat, the healthier you generally are. But again, that's a, that's a general save that can't be applied across the board. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how this, this all plays out. I think just an, um, issue of kind of getting through the, these last parts, uh, uh fairly quickly. The one thing I do want to just quick touch on Michael, um, on the regulatory side, do you, I know the USDA and FDA have come together to sort of, you know, say they're building a joint task force, if you will, on evaluating um, and regulating the cell-based meat industry going forward. Originally, I believe the USDA was not involved. There was a lot of pressure to put them involved given uh, their connection and sort of their oversight of, um, of, of the livestock industry. Do you just real quick, because uh, this also, this can be a rabbit hole of a discussion, I know. Um, yeah. Do you anticipate though, like there, there being issues in terms of the, the economic weight and power and influence of the meat industry? Do you anticipate issues where they might tell you, yeah, we are supportive of any, like, Hey, if you find a new way to create meat, then that's great for us. Cause we just want to sell meat. It doesn't matter if it comes from an animal. It doesn't matter if it comes from a cell, but of course it does matter if your business model today is a hundred percent derived on it coming from an animal, making that adjustment over is not an overnight thing. And it's not so easy to do. So of course it does matter, even if, you know, someone might say it doesn't, but do you anticipate, you know, this being a bumpy road, let's say just frame it that way, um, of, of sort of getting regulatory support and expedite in a way, um, that allows you to bring these products to market when the price point's ready. Um, uh, you know, given the sort of weight of the lobbies, lobbyists and the, and the, and the economic weight and the power, the, the, you know, the traditional meat industry has in this country. Yeah. So there's a, there's a bunch of questions in there. I'll try and keep it brief. Um, you know, in the U S we have two regulatory bodies for food. It's the FDA and the USDA right now, the USDA regulates, um, all meat and catfish. And the FDA regulates all seafood except for catfish. And they do a lot of similar things. They both have in their charter that they have to protect the safety and security of the American food supply, which is awesome. But the USDA has an added bit to its um, charter, which is that they must protect American economic interests. And so, you know, there's concern about them ruling in favor of like, you know, American meat companies uh, as opposed to American cell-based meat companies. Um, but there is also a good argument since a lot of us are based here that um, sort of muddies the waters uh, in terms of like what is protecting the American economic um, system. Um, so far, the FDA and USDA have formed this joint um, committee on cell-based meats, and they've been working really well together, which is really cool. They're, they're very different um, organizations. They're, they're very different people working at each of them. You know, the FDA is like in charge of pharma. And so they're a little bit more like straight laced and, and like very uh, formal and, and they lean um, Democrat as well. Whereas the USDA, they work a lot with farmers um, and they lean Republican. And so just very different characters to the to both organizations. You know, the, the FDA, uh, the commissioner of the FDA is, is um, uh, sort of more of like a 
hired, like he's not so appointed, whereas the Secretary of Agriculture in charge of the USDA is appointed by the president. Um, So the current Secretary of Agriculture um, is is appointed by Trump. And um, but basically so far, like, no, we haven't really seen huge opposition from um, like meat companies, because like I was saying earlier, and like you mentioned, they see this as a way of eating meat. And like, if this is how meat is made, this is how they want to make it. The real pushback we've seen is from unions of cattle ranchers. And that's because they're the workers in this who, you know, could potentially get screwed here. The American economy isn't set up to catch people um, when we transition from industries to other industries. They recognize that. Um, I really do think we need a system that has a better safety net for people to transition out of industries that are maybe a little bit less in line with like our, our plans for the environment and towards industries where they are. Um, so we've seen a little bit of pushback there. But in general, actually, everyone's working together fairly well. Um, and, and we're really pleased with the progress progress the FDA and, and USDA are making. Um, I think the only place where things could get dicey is labeling. Um and I say that especially because even in our industry, we can't even agree on what we should be labeled. So I have low confidence that we'll be able to negotiate effectively with you know anyone opposed to us what we should be labeled. But that um, you'll watch that happen over the next probably year as we move products to market. Got it. Thanks. So last question before we wrap things up. Um, what does the meat industry look like in the year 2050? I really just want the meat industry to look in, in whatever configuration it is, as something that, you know, the planet can survive with. Um, and I want it to be something that is um, more in line with our values. Like, you know, the population of the planet is rising, but the sections of the earth in which the population is rising are not the sections which are eating meat. Um, the people who are eating more and more meat are people in the fully developed world. The um, population is rising in the in the less developed world, the undeveloped world. And so what's really sad about all of this is that like any environmental devastation that is wreaked by uh, via rich people basically eating meat, um, those environmental effects are mostly going to affect poor people who are not eating meat. So it's basically this just like violence inflicted from the first world on the third world. And I really hope that just what we have by 2050 is a more equitable system that at the very least isn't externalizing um, meat, like the, the ill effects of meat production onto people who really are, are completely innocent in this process. Um, and I really think technology can get us there. I really feel that this is like one tool in a, in a set of other tools that we can use to produce food that um, doesn't overwhelm the, the world's ecosystem, because um, we do have enough resources on Earth to absolutely feed everybody. Um, and we do have, you know, the, the will to get that done. It's just a matter of like, how can we set systems in place to make that reality as soon as we possibly can? Yeah, well said. Well, to finish things up, Anna, do you want to do the the quick rapid fire questions of Michael? Yeah, definitely. So we we just ask you uh, four really quick questions. Um, kind of just give us the first thing that comes to mind. These are basically around conservation and um, the impact of the environment. So the first one is, what is your favorite book on climate conservation or the environment that you suggest everyone read? Hmm. Climate conservation or the environment that I suggest everyone read. Um, or even about like um, your industry in particular. Yeah, actually, so there's there's some good stuff on our industry, but I would I would say one thing that I read really that was really great um, that talks a lot about like people producing food and their relationship with economic systems as well as with the environment is this book called The Mushroom at the End of the World. I read it recently and I really loved it. It's about um, sort of like uh, Southeast Asian immigrants to America and um, how they're so involved in the Matsutake mushroom trade and how you can actually trace industrialization and deindustrialization of areas based on Matsutake prices globally. Um, and it really just breaks down like how the global economic like supply chains run, um, both from a food perspective and, and a bunch of other industries. I found it absolutely fascinating. I loved it. Um, my favorite book on our industry was actually one of the first books on our industry. It's called the In Vitro, uh, the In Vitro Meat Cookbook. Um, and it's basically just like this fun, like artists and idea of like all the possibilities that could be created when you grow meat outside of animals. It's old. It's like actually before any company existed in this industry, but it's still 
um, my favorite. I would be remiss also not to plug, um, although I haven't read it, Billion Dollar Burger, which just came out. Um, it's about our industry. It's by this really fantastic journalist by the name of Chase Purdy. Um, he's a close friend of mine and he's a fantastic writer. I would say he no, is like one of the like most well-connected industry insiders ever. Um, and we're actually starting a book club at Finless to read his book right now. Um, so haven't read it, but it looks great. Second okay. question is, is there a nature documentary or film that you recommend everyone take a look at? Or again, mm. something in your industry that gets insight? Um, I recommend watching Ghost Fleet. It, it talks about slavery in um, the seafood industry. It's it's very intense um, and it's it's incredibly upsetting, but I think it's really important for people to see the effects of, of what we do on, on other parts of the world. Mm, okay. Yeah, good point. And what is your favorite animal on earth? I have two answers. I, I love my dog with my entire life. He has his own Instagram. Um, he's amazing. <laughs> um, he's Roscoe Pig on Instagram. I call him a pig because he makes oinking noises. But uh, I've always grown up really loving penguins. Uh, don't really know why. I just think they're adorable. I've never seen one in person, but hopefully someday I can change that. That's great. And last question is, what is one behavior change that you think everyone should implement to or adopt it to help save the planet? I think we got to stop thinking individually. We got to start thinking in terms of building power and community. Um, like the, the the example that I give uh, is actually the way that I sort of <laughs> like terrorized my mom. My mom is really hardcore vegan, really hardcore into trying to save the environment. She spends like every second of every day trying to figure out exactly how to recycle every single thing that comes in or out of her house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just been trying to push her towards like, you know, if you spent all this energy um, instead of like making sure you recycle perfectly in joining together with your community to get a plastic bag ban going in the city that she lives in, in the city that I grew up in, Salem, Massachusetts, um, that would be huge. Like that would be so much more plastic than you can ever do on your own. And um, it's just a much more viable solution. Like get plastic ba- bags banned for everybody rather than try and convince every single person to recycle perfectly. So yeah, stop thinking individually and start thinking in a, in a community um in terms of what you can do for your community and how your community can, can band together to create system level change rather than just individual change. I love that. That's definitely true. And I think it's great because we've also had other people give that same response, which I think just nice. reinforces. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's really good to hear.